Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good evening. I couldn't tell if Sam said speaker of the hour or speaker for the hour, so we'll go with either one. Uh, Turning your Bibles open to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And that's where we'll be starting tonight, covering the next story in the book of Acts as we try to dig into the, the character and the work and the, uh, the attitude and the things expressed by the early church and what we learn about the early church here from the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 6 as we continue along in the incredible story. Uh, what's great about this chapter is it's a bit of a long section. Uh, chapter 7 is pretty long. It, has, it mostly consists of a sermon that was delivered by Stephen. Uh, and, and so we're going to kind of be able to pull away from the book of Acts a little bit and go back and look at some of the history of the Jewish people, but particularly in sight of what it is Stephen is trying to teach. Stephen is trying to present to the people there as he goes back through uh, the book of Acts. Stephen himself is a man full of grace and power. That's how he's described here. Chapter 6, verse 8, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. We know that in doing that, we don't know what miracles he's doing, we don't know uh, what kind of works he's involved himself in, but we do know He has gained attention for himself. Part of that attention has been positive attention because he is chosen by the congregation, by the Christians there, whenever they need to find seven men who, as the apostles described them, men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom that they can appoint to a duty. Stephen is an upstanding He's a standout. He is somebody that everybody recognizes. He is a man of God. He is a man that is full of the right attitude. He has wisdom. He is doing the works of God. He has the ability to do the works of the Holy Spirit. But in gaining the positive attention, you also find he gains the negative attention. Because he's not just one who is doing Uh, you know, waiting tables, as the apostles describe it a little bit earlier. He's also a man who is out there preaching and teaching and standing up for God. It is interesting to me that of the seven men that we know of that are chosen for this job of waiting tables, of making sure that the food gets to the right places, they are doing an administrative task so that the apostles will not be distracted from the work that the apostles do. It's interesting to me that in the greater details we have of two of them, what do we see them doing? Preaching. Teaching. They aren't men who are just good at spreadsheets. These are men good at talking about God. And I find that interesting, that here they choose men in their church, not men who are good administrators only, but men who actually do the work that Christians are supposed to do. 
And I think that's telling. And they do it to such a degree that they gain the kind of attention that Stephen gains. Philip himself will read about in chapter 8, and I don't want to step on those, uh, that, that territory a little you know, too much because we're going to be talking about that in our next sermon in this series. But Philip himself is not only preaching, but he is traveling to preach. And he is one of the men who carry the word of God out of Jerusalem to the next stage of the growth of the church. And so here he is not just a preacher, but he's a mover and a shaker. He's a spreader. He's one who gets out there and takes the word of God into places that it's not been yet. Well, Stephen is one of those. And because of the attention that he gets from the community, from the Jewish leaders, he is falsely accused. And it is interesting to me when you look at the story of Stephen, how many parallels there are between Stephen and Jesus. When Jesus, when they wanted to get Jesus, what did they do? They hired false witnesses. They hired them to come in and say things falsely against Jesus so that they could condemn Jesus and get rid of him. Do when Stephen, when they need to get rid of Stephen, they hire false witnesses to come and say ugly things about Stephen are false. And I use that term because they are lying about Stephen, but it's interesting that the things they accuse Stephen of, he probably actually did say. You know, they say he's speaking against Moses and God. Now, that's probably not true. He's not up there uh, spreading insults about Moses. But don't you think he is actually teaching that longer uh, the, the originator of the covenant that they should be following, that they should be following after a different set of laws? Yeah. And so in a sense, he probably is understood to be speaking ill of Moses and ill of God and ill of the law and ill of the holy place because he is showing that Jesus is a replacement for all of that. Well, if I'm un unwilling to accept a replacement for all of that, then I'm going to think Stephen is, is, is talking bad against my, uh, my covenant giver, my law, my temple. And that's how they perceived him. He also, again, a parallel between Jesus and Stephen, he also get up and say that he said that the temple would be torn down and that, you know, does that not sound familiar? Isn't that the same thing they accused Jesus of, that he said he would tear down the temple and in three days he'd build it up again? And so you have a lot of parallels here between Stephen is accused and the way Jesus is accused back just maybe a few months or even a year or more before. What I love about the end of chapter 6, though, is this. And look with me here. At the very end of chapter 6, he's been accused. He's been falsely accused. People have been hired to say false things about him. And it says in verse 15, And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't 
know how literally to take that phrase. I don't know if what they saw as he sat there, uh, maybe down uh, in the courtyard of the Sanhedrin, and they see his face start shining like the sun, as we hear angels described in different places in Scripture. I doubt that's the case. My understanding, what I would think this means, is the same thing we mean when we look at our baby who has been a horrendous terror all day long, and finally the baby has laid down for a nap, and mom and dad are sitting there panting with the strain of dealing with such an unruly baby, and they go, oh, she looks just like an angel. Right? That, that, that sense of this is not what we expect to see because normally she's screaming, she's red-faced, her mouth is wide open, but now all of a sudden because of her sleep, because of the peace that goes along with sleep, she, she looks just like an angel. It's those moments when children are sleeping that make them worth it, right? And Anybody else agree? Uh, so, I mean, he, he had this peace about about what was going on. That, that's my understanding of what's being said there, that Stephen, even though he is sitting in the midst of being accused and being accused falsely and being taken to court and having to stand before the Jewish leaders and make a defense, he doesn't know it at this point, but a defense for his life, he's, at, he's okay with it. We need more of that. We need more of that peace. Because I I, I think a lot of times, out of fear of the unknown or fear of the possibilities, we don't do the things we know we should do, and we have no peace about it. Whereas if we would just do what we know God wants us to do and not care about the consequences because whether it goes good or ill, God has this. There's a peace that goes along with that. And I think that's what you have with Stephen here. He, he, he's fine either any, any way this goes. He knows God will take care of him. And honestly, if you look at the history we have covered so far, from the beginning of the book of Acts all the way until now, Peter and John have already been arrested. Set free. The apostles get arrested. What happens? They are set free. And there's no reason why I think Stephen has any inclination that this won't happen to him. God has repeatedly taken care of his people when they run uh, face first into opposition with the Jewish leaders. Why wouldn't he do the same with Stephen? And honestly, even though it turns out differently, it still is God taking care of Stephen. And I think Stephen's okay with that. So Stephen gives this long sermon in the book of Acts, here particularly in chapter 7. And we're not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to kind of summarize each little section of it uh, to try to make sure that we get a good gist of what Stephen is teaching and what he's trying to show. But you do have in his sermon the main kind of climactic point all the way down in verse 51. And I want to read that part. Verse 51 down through verse 53. Here's Stephen's conclusion. You stiff-necked people, 
with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels and yet have not kept it. You resist the Holy Spirit. You resist the plan of God. You resist God's saviors, God's prophets, God's deliverers. You are doing the same thing today that your fathers have done all through your history. You are, by action, both stubborn and unacceptable to God because you were uncircumcised. That's bold. It's been amazing to me as we've looked through the book of Acts so far. It's really not until you get to about Acts 17 that you see the sermons take a spin away from boldness, directness, in your face, stomp on your toe type preaching. And this one's no exception to that rule. It is accusative and abrasive. And I'll be honest, if this kind of sermon were placed into today's language with today's topics, and it was preached from this pulpit, I wonder if we wouldn't have a lot of complaints. And maybe not from this pulpit, but from pulpits in general if we wouldn't have a rebellion against God's word and God's way because we don't like the way it was preached. I'm going to tell you right now, most of us would not have liked to have been a Jew in Stephen's audience because this sermon was absolutely a slap across the face. And it was a slap across the face regarding their heritage, regarding their current reality, regarding their uh, guilt. He just basically poured uh, fire on them. But it's what they needed to hear. And so let's kind of dig in to that sermon as we, we, we look at um, the, the things here in Acts chapter 1. First, you've got God laying a foundation of promises and obedience. And I think that's important because that's what he's really combating here with the Jews. They are not obedient. They are not trusting in God's promises. Abraham's given all these promises back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, that there, he would have a great uh, land, that he would be a great nation, that he would, through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Abraham has given all of these great promises. He would get up and go. What's he do? He gets up and he goes. He does exactly what God told him to do. He goes without knowing where he's going. He goes exactly where God tells him to go, to the land that God is going to give him, but not give him God was going to give to his ancestors 400 years later. But that's where God tells him to go. He gets up and he goes. And then Abraham has all these other promises that are given going to have a, a great nation. You're going to have all of these children, and they're going to have children, and you're going to have an innumerable amount of descendant, whereas here we've got Abraham, an old man who's never had a child yet. 
So he's given these impossible promises that become possible because they come from God. And Abraham, through circumcision, through all of these different promises and covenants, Abraham believes and he obeys, trusts, and God delivers. That's the way it was supposed to go with everyone. But what you have very quickly in this story that Stephen tells, things start falling apart. Okay, God guarantees this promise through the, through the covenant of circumcision. That's important because what did he say in his climactic conclusion? You who are uncircumcised. And so it's important to recognize he's dealing here with God guaranteeing what God said he's going to do by placing the sign of circumcision on Abraham and on all of Abraham's descendants. They were to remember that God was the one who provided the, the, the blessing of a nation, the blessing of an abundant descendancy. That was important. It was important. And Abraham believed and he was blessed with those descendants. And we know that he was eventually, 400 years later, blessed with the land, with Joshua coming in with the people. And we know that he, he, you know, his nation still continues on, uh, in, at least in a secular sense, and in a spiritual sense through us. And so that's important. That, that's kind of the foundation. That's the way this should have gone. It should have been if, every, if, if, if you were not like your fathers and you would obey like Abraham obeyed, things would be good. But they're not like that. What you find immediately is that the patriarchs were jealous. And I love that he places the beginning of sin on the patriarchs. You know why? Every Jew associated themselves with a patriarch. Well, I'm a descendant of Judah, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. Well, those are the descendants, those are the patriarchs, those are the fathers who grew jealous, who, who, who took Joseph, and they're very aware of these stories, they took Joseph and they treated Joseph unfairly, they threw him in a pit, they sold him into slavery, he was sold into slavery in Egypt, and Joseph had to live a life away from his family while God blessed him. And so the patriarch grew jealous. That's their fathers, but God did good. And that's going to be the pattern you see through this whole sermon. The patriarchs did bad, God did good. Patriarchs bad, God good. Okay, you're going to see that again and again. The next step of this, the patriarchs were experiencing a famine. Well, anytime you read of famines, particularly in the Old Testament, even though this precedes the law, famines were bad things and typically viewed as punishments from God. And so the patriarchs aren't doing good. They did sin because of their jealousy, and they're now experiencing a famine. But God provided for them by sending Joseph. Joseph was the one who was able to provide food. He was the one who was able to preserve the family. He brings the family out of the promised land, down into Egypt, and God protects them there for a time until God allows them to be enslaved. So the patriarchs move from the promised land while God promises to send them back. Okay, everybody seeing the pattern here? 
Okay? And, and it's not necessarily a sinful thing that the patriarchs moved from the promised land. That's not the point here. The point is the patriarchs had to leave the promised land. But God promises to bring them back. Next piece, the patriarchs are enslaved to a, to a, a shrewd, not an, a shrewd pharaoh. They're enslaved. That that the way the patriarchs are. I mean, the patriarchs are presented in this sermon as being malicious and helpless people. But God, through Moses, plans a rescue. And we know the whole story there of the book of Exodus and following. You've got the story of Moses coming, and uh, he's raised up uh, as a young man in the Pharaoh's house, and he's educated in all the ways uh, he is trained to be a deliverer and an influencer, uh, and, and he is there. He, he's, he's prepped for the job of leading these people, but the people reject him as a deliverer. That's the first real rejection we have here. We got the people rejecting Joseph, but God raises him up to be a deliverer. Now you've got God raising up Moses to be a deliverer, and the people reject him too. That's another pattern you're going to see through this sermon. They reject everyone God sends them. Okay? So Moses trained to be this great deliverer. He wants to deliver the people. He sees their unfair treatment. He sees the results of their enslavement. He wants them to be rescued from all of that. The people say no. And we know as a result of that, Moses goes out into the land of Midian, and there he, he becomes a herdsman, a shepherd, and he is there for the next 40 years of his life. Well, in that meantime, the patriarchs are crying out to God about their enslavement. Oh, we don't want to be slaves. We don't want to have this hardship. We don't want to have to do all of this work. And so God sends Moses again. He's already raised up Moses and prepped him. They've already rejected him, but he sends them back. God sends Moses back to be the deliverer. And God does many signs and wonders through Moses. That's significant in this sermon because what have we already been told Stephen has been doing? Many signs and wonders. And just like they are not really going to do the things that, that you expect them to do, you know, God's already raised up deliverers like Moses, uh, they've already rejected Moses once. Well, keep going in the sermon. God promises another prophet like Moses. I want you to look here. There's an interesting little section here in the center of the sermon, uh, chapter 7, and I want to start reading here in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to Israel, to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. Now, you know this. I know this. Who is the prophet like Moses? Jesus, right? And we're aware he's the fulfillment of that. Listen to this next piece. He, the one, the prophet like Moses, is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Now, my understanding here, because of the antecedent, is that the he who is there with the angel 
could be talking about Moses, but it could also be talking about the deliverer who was to come. Which means they've already rejected Jesus. They've already rejected Jesus. Uh, in, In some sort of spiritual sense, Jesus was involved in the Exodus. Jesus was involved, before he's called Jesus, in the deliverance of these people. And they've already been rejecting what the angel brought to them to obey. They're already rejecting that covenant. And then, in case that's unclear, keep reading with me. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. So instead of choosing this one, we will choose other gods. Isn't that interesting? They're choosing false gods over the deliverer who God had promised, who worked with the angel to bring them out of enslavement. And so it can be understood here that they've already rejected Jesus back as Israelites in the wilderness. And so they're disobedient to him by making idols instead of worshiping the God they should have been worshiping. We know it goes on to say that God drove out the nations during the time of Joshua. Uh, and, and the implication here, although it doesn't say this, the implication here is that God had to drive them out as if they wouldn't do it. And we know from our study of the book of Joshua, did they complete the task of driving out the nations? No. And so God had to be the one to obey and do the work that he had commissioned them to do. Then it jumps forward in time to talk about David. David wants to build a temple. Solomon ends up building the temple that David wanted to build. But the truth is, God doesn't dwell in that temple. Well, you remember back at the accusation they had that they lowered against Stephen? Stephen is is preaching against the holy place. He never stops speaking against the holy place and the law. That's what it says back in chapter 6 and verse 13. So God, uh, Stephen's talking bad about the temple. No, he's not. What he's doing, he's showing them David wanted to build a temple. Solomon ends up building a temple. But the temple is not to be worshipped. The temple is merely a building that God used to present himself to the people. God doesn't use that anymore. God has moved on. God's dwelling place is not that building on earth in a city in the Middle East. God's God's place is heaven. God's throne is somewhere greater than this. That's where we should be bowing down. Is that the throne of God in heaven? And so his conclusion, when he uh, finally lays all this out there and draws this contrast between them and their understanding of the way things are, they accuse him of working against God. But the truth is it's they who have resisted the Holy Spirit. They want to cast blame on Stephen, but Stephen really not to be blamed here. They accuse him of speaking against the temple, but the truth is he's the one who actually understands where God's dwelling place really is. 
and if not in a building of stone and gold. They want to accuse him of eliminating Moses' customs, but honestly, he's the one teaching what Moses intended for the people to understand, which is there's one coming that's greater than I am. He's teaching the fulfillment of the law. He's teaching uh, the new customs that come with obeying Jesus. They want to accuse him of breaking the law, but he's the one revealing they're the ones who have turned against the law and are breaking it. But you know, when there's a a messenger delivering a message that you don't want to hear, and it is so carefully crafted and presented in such a way that you can't really reject the message, what What's the next response? Kill the messenger. And that's exactly what they do here. They gnash their teeth at him, we see here at the end of chapter 7. And then after that, they, uh, Stephen has this uh, statement where he says, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I could, I, what a glorious image that I plan to see one day. And then the people drag him from the city and they stone him. Uh, understand, they had the right to do that. I, I know we learn all the time in the, in the Gospels that they tell Pilate, we don't have the right to execute people. No, they didn't have the right to crucify people. They could stone them. And so they drag Stephen outside the city and they start, they pick up those stones and they start throwing them at him. And he makes these two statements. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Now we already talked at the beginning about the parallels between the accusations between Jesus and Stephen, right? Now we've got parallels here of the actual killing. Of the seven statements that Jesus makes that are recorded for us on the cross, One of them is, receive my spirit. And one of them is, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. For Stephen, it's Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Aren't the parallels here, don't they just hit you right in the face? And I think the reason for that is Stephen here is the first example of what it meant to give everything to the cause of Christ. Everything. To your last breath, he dedicated himself to serving this Lord Jesus. And there wanted, I think Luke wanted there to be absolutely no doubt that what he did, he did mirroring and copying the character of Jesus himself. I think the Holy Spirit wanted us to see that. When you give everything for Jesus, you are being like Jesus because Jesus gave everything for you. And I I love that. that. In this, you've got all of these glimpses of Jesus. He's being preached. Jesus in the wilderness, possibly. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus' words from the cross here mirrored in Stephen's words from the ground as he's being stoned. And it allows us to see just the power that goes along with serving Jesus to the very end. So let me ask you, 
Are you willing to give all for Jesus? You know what answer bothers me when you ask that question? The answer, well, you don't know till you're put into the situation. Yeah, I, I remember back when the whole Sandy Hook incident happened, the shooting at that school, and, and there was a report that came out about one of the students was, was asked at gunpoint to say she didn't believe in Jesus, and she refused to make that kind of statement, and so she got shot. And she was one of the students who died. And, and people would say, oh, you know, what, what great faith that is. What, you know, I, I wonder if I would have the same response. And, well, you know, you never know till you're put into the situation. I'm going to argue with that. If that's your response, then I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, then your answer is no. <laughs> I just don't want to admit it. Because the only way to have that kind of dedication and devotion and fortitude in the face of danger is to be prepared for facing that danger. The only way to know, yes, I would stand with Jesus, is if there really isn't another option in your heart and in your mind. I will stand with Jesus no matter what, no matter the circumstances, no matter what's at risk. He is my Lord. No questions asked. It is not until you make that kind of determination and confession of faith that you can know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, I'm not rejecting Jesus. And so all of this answer of, well, you never know till you get there, if that's your answer, then you do know. The answer is, no, you won't. Because if you have to sit there in the face of danger and figure out what should my answer be, you're going to give no answer, or you're going to give a safe answer, or you're going to justify giving the wrong answer. Don't let that be you. Let me tell you, Jesus gave everything for you. Everything. Stephen gave everything for Jesus. And it wasn't because he had decided, well, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. I'll find out when they actually have the stones ready to throw at me. It was because he had so completely confessed Jesus as Lord. He had given up who knows what at this point. We, we don't know. It, I mean, he, he clearly was a man who was dedicated and devoted to serving God because he was chosen as one of the men who were known to be dedicated to serving God. He, he was determined to follow God and to do things God's way and to represent God in the world and to preach Jesus to people who didn't want to hear about Jesus. And when push came to shove, and they had drug him out of the city. Well, before that, when he's standing before the Sanhedrin, peace like an angel. When he's delivering the word of God, a message to a group of religious leaders, he delivers it with boldness and courage and without backing down from what the truth was. When they are holding stone ready to kill him, he is looking to heaven for comfort from Jesus. I pray that's you and me. I, 
I don't know what the future holds in our country. I don't know what the future holds for you. I don't know if you plan to one day go overseas and represent Jesus in a more hostile environment than we have here in America. I don't know that we will always have a a docile environment here in in America. It, It might get hostile here. might get hostile at work. You might lose your job for standing for Jesus. It might get hostile in your family. You might lose a relationship with a friend or a family member because of your love for Jesus. The only reason, the only way you'll ever stand for Jesus like that is to make the determination now. So let's give ourselves to Jesus. Let's be like Stephen. Let's preach him boldly. And let's stand for him, even if it means thrones are hitting us in the face. Stones, not thrones. Stones are hitting us in the face. Because he deserves that. We always ask people in an invitation at the end of sermons to give their lives to Jesus, to come and be baptized into Christ. That offer stands. Let me add to it this. Are you so completely sold out for Jesus, ready to serve him no matter what? Because if you're not, you need to come forward and let us pray for you. Let us strengthen you and embolden you. We talked about fellowship this morning. That's one of the purposes of fellowship, to strengthen one another. That's what encouragement means, to put courage into a brother or sister when you encourage them. You are helping them be stronger and stand up more firmly for their God. If you need that, if you need help, if you need courage, if you need more determination, let us help you. Let us challenge you. Let us pray for you. Let us involve ourselves in your life in a way that, that, that will help you be stronger. So whether you need the invitation to become a child of God or you need the invitation to, to be stronger for God, We want you to come forward and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.